but we're not quite doing it yet. In fact, today, if you're uh, in the lectionary or the liturgical calendar and you see uh, maybe you're semi-familiar with these big seasons, uh, if you go inside of a, a lectionary or a liturgical calendar, which is this way that the church for thousands of years has oriented itself to time and to mark time differently than the world around them, to, to set their calendars on a different rotation than, uh, that is centered around the life of Jesus, uh, there are these little days that pop up. They're kind of like a part of uh, this bigger kind of calendar. And one of them is today, and it's called Transfiguration Sunday. And it's a moment in the liturgical calendar and the season that the church has used for thousands of years to say, like, this is where we're going to, like, stop and talk about and kind of acknowledge what it means that Christ uh, revealed himself to be both uh, Jesus, the teacher, and the mentor, and the one leading his disciples, but also to be the Messiah and the Son of God. Uh, and there was this moment. And many of you are familiar with the stories um, and, and familiar with the way that works and the way that happens uh, in the Gospels. And it's an important part. In the lectionary today, we were going to read it and it didn't end up happening. But uh, the, the narrative out of the Gospels is from Mark. And in Mark, it's this moment where Jesus goes up onto the mountain and he takes with him two of his, or three of his disciples. And they go and they see and there's this like, moment where fire comes down and you get Exodus images and Old Testament images and prophet images. And standing next to him is Moses and Elijah. And you see this moment, and Peter being Peter's, like, hey, let's build a tent, and like, let's just camp out here. Jesus is like, no, you've seen something, but now we're going to go back down. And in almost all of the Gospels, Mark specifically, uh, this is like the exact halfway point in Mark's narrative. Uh, the story of Jesus and who he is is exactly halfway when this transfiguration happens. Uh, in John is another passage, or you see it. it after that, like, the, the narrative turns to the passion. And so both in our Gospels and in our calendar, it's kind of this moment where we see that the disciples really, truly get who Jesus is. There's this quite literal mountaintop moment. And Mark, this is cool too. It's the, geographically, it's the highest point in the whole narrative. And up until this point, like Mark is kind of one of the, the Gospel narratives where we're hiding who Jesus is a little bit. Like there's always kind of this sense of like Jesus isn't fully revealing himself quite yet. We get that in the other uh, narratives as well. And, and then it's in this moment that like his revelation is given to the apostles like in full. Like this is it. This dude is the Messiah. So if you are following along at home and you're like have read the Old Testament and you get to Mark and you're like here it is. You would expect that this is the moment that the takeover happens. Like this is when they overthrow. And they go down the mountain and the passion narrative begins. And we're, we're meant to feel that that tension, that difficulty. And that's a lot of what we've been talking about in the season of Epiphany, is that there are these Epiphany moments, these moments when we realize who Jesus is, what he would have for us, what he would long for us to do and to be. And then life kind of goes on. Very normal moments. You, you have to kind of continue doing what you were doing as you reflect on those mountaintop moments. But you rarely ever get to stay there and what we see oftentimes in scripture and in the stories we have read up until this point, like over this, these last five weeks, what you see in this, if you continue reading, is for a lot of people, it's at this point, it gets really difficult. For the disciples and for Jesus, it gets really difficult after this kind of large epiphany moment, this transfiguration moment. And so that's the text in Mark. Hold that in your mind and in your memory, because we're actually going to read from a passage that 
may seem slightly obscure to you to be a Transfiguration Sunday passage because it's not directly connected to Jesus because we're going to go back into the Old Testament and we're going to go to 2 Kings. Now, because I told you that Elijah and Moses were there at the Transfiguration, once we start reading this, you'll see, oh, it's Elijah. Okay, so there's some connection there. But if you want to, you can turn with me your Bibles or you can follow along on the screen. I'll read our text for us. It comes from 2 Kings chapter 2, and we are going to read verses 1 through 12. And I'll have you uh, stay seated since it's a slightly longer passage, but you know, a lot of times we stand to read the text. But in your heart and in your mind, you can still attune to the text uh, and hear this differently as, as we sit and receive uh, what we believe to be the word of God. So hear this from 2 Kings. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here. The Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of the prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied, so be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, stay here, Elisha. The Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. The company of the prophet at Jericho went up to Elisha and asked him, do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied, so be quiet. And then Elisha said to him, Stay here, the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. Fifty men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance, facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left. And the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. And then he took hold of his garments and tore it into two. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so quick context of kings and where Elijah and Elisha are coming from. Uh, just fun fact, uh, there was no first and second kings in the original scroll. There was just one big scroll called Kings. And we believe that this would, or we best understand that this was written during Israel's first uh, exodus. And so it's recounting the narrative and the story of the kings of Israel. It's, it's aptly uh, titled Scroll. And it's going through their history and their story. But now, if you read through First and Second Kings, or Kings as one big scroll, you'll notice that continually the author is referencing something else. It's referencing the chronicles of the kings. 
Maybe this is First and Second Chronicles, if you're familiar with that. There's this story, there's this way in which we get the story kind of twice. In the Hebrew Bible, First and Second Chronicles is going to come at the end of the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, in our text, it's going to follow this. So when you're doing your reading plans and going through the Old Testament, you're kind of like, didn't we just read all this? And you did, but you're reading it from two different kind of perspectives or vantage points. Chronicles is quite uh, more in line with what its name says, which is to chronicle the, the rise and fall of the kings in Israel. First and second kings really could be called first and second kings versus prophets because there's a unique narrative or storyline through this text where every time you see a king named, there's always a prophet named alongside of them or sometimes the prophet is named first and the king is named second because the prophets will exist over a period of many kings at times because some of these kings are really short-lived. And this is what we have going on with Elijah. Elijah's existed since about the middle of 1 Kings, if you're uh, familiar with where those narratives go. And he's encountered lots of kings that have fallen away from what God had intended for his people. And these kings, and what we see from Chronicles and from Kings, is that they fail a lot. And so if Chronicles and the Chronicles of Kings is more of a historical narrative, and we don't know for sure if the Chronicles of the Kings that's being referenced here is for sure that exact same one we have in our text, but they serve similar purposes... We have this one as more of a narratival historical following. This one is a more theological approach. It wants you to understand theologically what's going on, what's kind of happening here. And it wants you to understand who is in charge. And so there's always this direct kind of like movement. One prophet dies, one prophet moves on, and another prophet replaces him. And there's this lineage of God's favor and his provision and his guidance and his strength and his protection through the prophets. As kings fall and rise, as they fail and they succeed, always kind of there throughout this narrative are these prophets that are moving and kind of guiding and shaping and leading the people of Israel just as much as the kings are. It's an interesting tension, narratively, uh, like as you read it. There's this interesting way in which these prophets seem to be just as much in charge, just as much leading, guiding, shaping, as the kings who are supposed to be the ones with all the splendor and the glory and the power. And Elijah's been living in that, and he's done well for himself, and the people like Elijah. But his time has come. It's time for him to pass the baton and to move on. And Elisha, though he says, my father, my father, we'll get to that in a second, isn't actually his son. He's his disciple. He's his mentee. And, and he's been training and living with Elijah. And it's time for him to kind of become the next prophet that will oppose the kings and that will be God's mouthpiece and be God's guidance for his people because the kings tend to fail at that miserably again and again. And so this is the moment of transition. And this is what's happening. And so... In this text, the kingdoms have split at this point, if you're familiar with your uh, Old Testament history. Uh, we now have the northern and southern, Israel versus Judah. Uh, the kings have failed. We're very close to exile at this point for the northern half of the kingdom. Southern half of the kingdom will fall into exile a little bit later. And so there is a sense in which like, things have not been going exactly the way they should. And so we get this moment where Elijah's done moving on, and Elisha's going to step in and take over in this role of prophet. Now, more specifically, the context of this very passage, 
they're going on this journey, and the text seems to say that it's, it's for a day, and they, they're going from city to city. And what seems to be the indication of going from city to city is that you would understand that Elijah is like the prophet. Because he goes and he meets these other prophets, and they all come out to see him. And so you come and you see this man that is the mouthpiece, the one that they've kind of all been looking up to and following from. But there are prophets in other places, and that's good to know. And so they go, and there's this way in which they're moving on this journey, and you're meant to see some things here. You're meant to get a sense of how Elijah and the prophets stand in lineage with people like Moses and Abraham and Noah. And there's the way these stories are told, that there's a rhythm and a sequence, and there's a way in which you should be going like, I feel like I've heard this before. I feel like I've heard about somebody that stood on the edge of some waters and parted them and walked across on dry land. And you're not just supposed to see the way that Elijah stands and that the prophet stands in fulfillment of this, but the way that the prophet and the, and the people that are pursuing the Lord stand in for all of the people of Israel. You're supposed to get a sense of this, that the prophet isn't just someone that speaks on behalf of God and his people, but the prophet is like the embodiment of the people. What God longs for and intends for them to fulfill, fulfill and to experience. And so as you see these different narratives kind of unplaying, he goes from city to city. And I love that Elisha is like, no, I'm not, I'm not leaving you. He has a sense that, and he knows apparently that this is it. This is the day. Elijah's going somewhere. And Elisha's told to stay, to wait behind. Uh, it, it, Eugene Peterson in the message He's like, I forget exactly how he says it, but it's this sense of like, absolutely not, no way. Like there's, you could not get me to leave you at this moment. And if you're a mentor and this person that you've loved and cared for for so long that you've looked up for, you know, is about to end their life, you too would want to continue to be near to them. You get this sense. And how much grief and heartache and sorrow is mixed up into that? Well, we don't know. You get some sense that maybe there's some as he talks to the prophets and he says to them, yeah, 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 don't talk about it. I know what's happening. Don't talk about it. Or maybe, you know, he just doesn't want to be told what to do because he's a young dude and, you know, he knows and has all the answers. He's like, yeah, yeah, I got it, I got it. You don't need to explain it to me. So there's this way in which we see that they're moving and this journey is going again and again. And he longs to be near to him. And Elijah, as he continues to say, hey, stay back, he starts to get this sense by the third time, like, I think Elisha, like, he gets what's going on. I, I get what's going on. We know what's about to happen. The Lord's calling me to something. And in this moment, like Elijah's looking to me to, to get something. And so Elijah turns and he looks at him and he says to him, well, what is it that you want before I go? Like, what are, you, what are you trying to accomplish by staying near to me throughout this day? And in that moment, he asks and he says, I want a double portion of your spirit. You might read that and think, like, well, is this, like, the Holy Spirit? Yes. Is it Elijah's spirit? Does that somehow get passed on? Are we getting into weird, like, new age, whatever? It's kind of strange. No, that's not what it is. It's a way, first of all, of talking about how the firstborn would receive the father's inheritance. So not just the wealth and, and the things that go with that in an inheritance, but it, the double portion, it's a way of talking about how the firstborn would receive from his father the status, the power, the name that goes with the inheritance. That's why it's a double portion. 
the double like helping, if you will. The, the Hebrew literally is mouthful, mouthful. That's what he wants. He wants a double mouthful of this inheritance, of what Elijah has. And so you see Elisha gets it. Like there's something different about who Elijah is. There's something different about the way he operates and functions in life. And that there's a way in which the Lord has blessed him in a different kind of way. And there's a way that all these prophets along have stopped and looked at him. And you see this. The parting of the waters. This is an interesting one too that I kind of skipped over. In verse 6, right at the end. Up until that point, it's all they, 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 they. And then it's the two of them, and that gets mentioned one more time. The two of them, the Hebrew for that is the exact same language when Abraham and Isaac are going and they're about to sacrifice Isaac. That's not, on, or that's not like just a coincidence. That's on purpose. The author wants you to see this is Abraham. This is Moses. This is the people of God coming, and there's something happening here. There's a transition and they go up, and then they see something. Fire comes down. You have Sinai. You have sacrifice language of the fire coming. You have the temple, the Holy of Holies, the, the inner sanctum. This is holy ground. This is special. And Elisha calls out, my father, my father. You get the weird language of chariots and of these flaming horsemen. And just the way Hebrew divine... And, it's strange, and let's let it be strange. I think it helps the narrative, and we don't have to completely understand and explain everything. But one of the things, when he says that you are the chariot, remember, this is kings, and it really, in many ways, is kings versus prophets. And what Elisha's saying in that moment, when he sees this divine kind of transfiguration happening with Elijah, when he sees Elijah becoming something else and leaving earth as a living human, which would be weird... And strange, and again, we don't have all the answers to this, and so let's leave some space for mystery. We don't have to understand it all completely. But he sees this, and he says, you are the chariot of Israel. And what he's saying in that moment is what the narrative of kings is trying to tell us. And that's that it's, it's the prophet that leads and guides and protects the people of God, not the king and the armies. Which what that's really saying is that it's Yahweh who defends and protects not the kings. And it will always be Yahweh. And this is always kind of the tension between the prophets and the kings. Is that the prophets are on the side of Yahweh and the kings want to rely. And usually when they get in trouble, almost every time in the Old Testament, is because they over-rely on their strength, their power, their military uh, abundance, their worldly kind of uh, ways of success and being seen in a certain status or a certain light. And Elisha sees this, and he says, this, this is it. God, Yahweh, he is the one that will protect and lead and guide and make sure that the people of God arrive to where he intends them to arrive. And then Elisha rips his clothes. It's a moment of grief, sadness. Elijah's left. I would imagine also, as a young man that is stepping into ministry and stepping into that mantle, that, that position, there's possibly also some grief and anxiety and rendering of the clothes as a way to ask God for help as he is about to step in and to take on something and fulfill or step into some shoes that are really big, metaphorically. We don't know how big Elijah's feet actually were, but, you know, we'll, we'll go with it. And so he's wondering, like, how am I going to do this? This grief, this heartache, 
And I think, too, that there's a way in which what the author is hinting at is what we'll learn to understand better as the New Testament like fleshes some of this out. But there's a way, too, in which he's rendering the old self. The old ways are they're done now. He no longer is that, but he is this. He is being changed and transformed in this moment, just as Elijah was being changed and transformed into something else. And what we're meant to see, we didn't read the rest of it. This is literally the middle of the narrative. And it gets to this point, and now if you would keep reading in 2 Kings 2, Elisha walks backwards, and like all the same things happen in reverse. And what you're meant to see is that Elisha now carries into the legacy, into to the work that Elijah was doing. And this is the way the prophets always function. This is the way the people of God were meant to function. There's supposed to be this way in which they continued to respond and continued to follow and be in the footsteps, in the lineage of. And there was a way in which that was supposed to lead us back to what Yahweh intended for his people. The same thing is meant to be seen in the gospel narratives. In those moments when Jesus is on the mountain and he's transfigured, what he looks at his disciples and essentially says is, now follow me. Come and change and follow in my footsteps. Follow in the ways that I have been doing things. As you have seen who I am, continue. And that's what happens. He hands that mantle over. He gives it to him. And in the same way that Elisha receives the double portion, and we see that he gets it because he too is able to go down and split the waters. He too goes and meets with the prophets. The power, the very power that indwelled within Elijah, the spirit of God, of Yahweh, doing things through him. The power to look at history and to look at stories and to look at moments and to look at people and to say that there is a possibility for change and redemption. There's hope and there's joy and sorrow and grief. The possibility that this isn't all that we have to know, but that there's redemption. There's restoration and reconciliation. The ministry of Elijah gets passed on to Elisha. And then that ministry is powered by the Spirit of God. And when we see the disciples go up onto the mountains with Jesus, onto the mountain with Jesus, we see then in that moment the same thing is to be understood. The very Spirit of God that is in Jesus, man and God himself, fused into one. The God-man, empowered, performing miracles, raising the dead to life, ultimately and eventually defeating death itself. The narrative of the New Testament is given to us that in that moment we are to understand that his disciples, his apprentices, those that he has been mentoring, will go on to carry the very same mantle, that very same portion. It is a double portion. It is an inheritance from their father. Jesus is the firstborn, son of God. We, the disciples, carry that. The disciples then carry it. Now we continue in that lineage it gets passed through and down as we experience it. And it's the Spirit of God that maintains. It's the Spirit of God that holds it together. Ultimately, we'll get to Pentecost uh, 50 days after Easter and after the resurrection. And that is the Spirit coming and filling his church and filling his people to continue in this lineage, to continue in the same ministry of Elijah and of Jesus. To continue to ask and to, to expect that the Spirit of God would come and dwell among you in your life and amongst us and the people as the church. 
to be the people of God, to imagine possibilities that seem unfathomable. To live in a way that brings hope and joy and peace in a world that is in desperate need of it. This is to be our response too. To Jesus, to the text, to these moments where we come again and again to understand that we are to follow in those footsteps. To continue in those ways. And to imagine worlds and possibilities that are from futures. To see the now and to understand that the Lord would have something for it. That we're not relegated or just set in these moments as they exist, but that there is an indwelling hope. There's a spirit that wants to invade, that wants to change, that wants to see reconciliation happen, that wants to see restoration happen, that wants to see blind eyes opened, to see the dead brought to life, metaphorically and figuratively, you know, or, or literally, both. Like the, the, the Spirit wants to come and bring power, bring change. And we're meant to experience that and hold that and carry that with us. To understand that this thing disrupts, that it changes us. And as we see who God is and we understand who Jesus is, and as we've spent this time sitting in these epiphany moments, we're to understand that those transformations, those transfigurations, they happen. We see Jesus for who he really is. And it is meant to change us as well. For Elijah and Elisha, there is two transfigurations. There's two transformations for the disciples and for Jesus. There are two transfigurations happening on that mountain. There are two things changing, both Jesus and his disciples. But we're well acquainted with, and I love that this passage sits right as we're about to enter into the Lenten season. As we're about to choose openly and willingly to step into the wilderness. Because the reality of it is, is as you sit in these epiphany moments, oftentimes what is asked of you, what it looks like to be changed and transformed is not that all of your circumstances magically are all of a sudden different, better, or, or disappear. Hardship, difficulty, it still comes. In fact, Jesus says, this is the life. Pick up your cross and follow me. Bonhoeffer says that Jesus' invitation to the disciples is to come and to die. And that's the invitation to us. It's difficulty, oftentimes. But in the midst of that difficulty, you have moments like this that you hold fast to. Here's a cool thing about Elijah. Elisha, the second one. I say those words basically the same, so you might have been confused at times. I apologize. Elisha. His ministry becomes defined by one, in a lot of ways, of feasting celebrating the mantle he got to carry in, in a unique way that his was a little bit different than Elijah's. And I like that there's this moment in Kings where he asks, right? He says, I want a double portion. I want a double mouthful, a mouthful, mouthful, to feast. And, and even in that moment of transfiguration or, or of whatever we want to call it with Elijah going up, there's all sorts of uh, sacrifice language there, the way they were split, the way the, the, the cloak was left. The way that the priest was to be given things. Like, like there's all this overlap between Leviticus, which is why you should continue to read it in your daily Bible plans as you go through the daily readings. Because there's this language in which it shapes and brings so much depth and clarity to these little moments. So there's all this sacrifice language. And in that sacrifice language, what you see, and what you understand is that this would have been a feast moment for the priest. 
when sacrifices happened, when they were brought into the temple, and it was a feast moment and a moment of celebration for the people of God. And they would have been invited into that. And this is what Elisha gets invited into in his grief and his heartache and his sorrow of seeing his mentor go. There's this thing, though, that's like, there's also a feast moment. There's a celebration to it. There's, there's tension. And all the hardship that Elisha is going to face, there's a way in which joy, hope, excitement is supposed to be carried with him through his ministry into that. And we see the same thing happening in the gospel narratives with Jesus. And the New Testament wants to pick up on this, of this transition from Elijah and Elisha and, and Elijah being, for the Jewish people in a lot of ways, becomes this like messianic kind of like end of the world figure for them. If you're familiar with the Jewish practice of Passover to this day, in the Old Testament and now, like post-Elijah and in current day, there's, if, if you celebrate Passover with Jewish people, there's a seat that is open that is, they call it the Elijah seat. Because since Elijah went up, they expected that he would come back. That he would come and he would bring with him. And, and there's language of this when the New Testament starts. And in our Bibles, the way our uh, Protestant, Catholic, Christian, you know, the, the, the Old Testament that we have, we don't end with First and Second Chronicles, we end with Malachi. And Malachi ends with a promise that the spirit of Elijah would come and it would bring freedom. That the people of God would be redeemed and reconciled, that they would be free, that they'd be able to live the life that they were supposed to live. And then John the Baptist is going to come, and there's all this John the Baptist language with Elijah that you're going to see, this, this proclamation, this coming, the Spirit is filled within him to proclaim the good news. And then Jesus is going to become that all the more. And you see this in this transformation, this, this ministry of Elijah passed to Elijah, passed all the way down, and Jesus comes and he fulfills this. And I love the language of Jesus being a better and newer Elijah. Because you think about what it is that when he asked in that, when Elisha asked in that moment of Elijah, that I want a double portion of what you have. And as Jesus sits at that fulfillment, and here's the cool part about Jesus too, right? He's not just the prophet, but he's also the king. As Jesus becomes like the reconciliation of even that tension that existed in the people of God for so long. And he is the prophet king, the messianic king that they had longed for, but he comes from both sides. He is both, and he brings it together, and he brings restoration and healing in that moment. And this is the Jesus that sits at the table with his disciples at the moment of Passover, and he looks at them, and they talk about the bread and the cup that was being passed, being given to them to celebrate and to acknowledge and to name the expectations of God's coming hope, his coming joy, his coming salvation, that God would come and redeem and bring new life, that he would come and bring new hope, that he would come and bring an ability for the people to be who they were meant to be. He says, in that moment, just as Elisha looks at Elijah and says, sees the chariot, sees God coming, sees the protection, and he says, you were it. Jesus says, I am it. I am the provision. I am the forgiveness. I am the protection. I am the strength. I'm the bread of life. I'm the blood poured out. And he offers it freely to his disciples to take and to eat. And we come, and this is the line from Passover to communion. 
we come acknowledging who Jesus is and seeing him for what he is. And as the band comes up and begins to play, we'll come and we'll receive the bread and the cup. There's a way in which you see in these moments who Jesus is supposed to be for us. There's a moment, there's a way here in which we come and we ask again and again, week after week, that we could receive that inheritance, that name, that strength, that power, that double portion, that double mouthful. And quite literally, we inherit the same ministry of feasting. Even through Lent, as we wander into the wilderness, and we choose to kind of give up and abstain and to fast and to experience uh, want and to experience need in a different kind of way, we always say Sundays are still for feasting. There's still a way in which you pause on Sundays and you celebrate because we have Jesus. And he has us. And so you come in this moment and you come and you feast again and again. And as you feast, you come knowing that somehow in mystery and in wonder, he's present here with us now as we walk up here and as we pray with one another and as we sing and as we hold those elements in our hands. And somehow that bread and that cup changes to something in us, through us. Physically, the church has lots of opinions on this. You can pick yours. But what, what everyone will acknowledge is that something changes. And as we feast, and as we receive that mouthful of the bread and the cup, and there's lots of bread up here, so take a mouthful with you. Take a big chunk back and chew on it for a while. Like physically, allow this to be a moment that you experience. And in so doing, there's a transformation that happens there and then in you. And that spirit empowers you to continue this ministry, to continue the ability to hope and to see beyond just our circumstances, to imagine a better future, to embrace a reality and a citizenship that is beyond this world. Not always easy. Looks a lot like walking towards Jerusalem at times. It looks a lot like facing our death and our loneliness and our difficulty. But we do so knowing that this is who God is. We do so with a, a deep understanding and knowledge of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Knowing that that will empower us, sustain us, protect us as he is our chariot and our horsemen. Our cleft, our rock. He's our protection, our provision. And he's our guide and our forgiveness. And so as the band plays, I invite you to come. Take a piece of the bread and the cup. Hold on to those elements. Walk back to your seats. There's a gluten-free on this side if you're in need of that. You know, after they finish up the song, I'll come back and I'll lead us in the reception of those elements as we take of one bread and one cup as the people of God. So come and receive those gifts now in this moment. Amen.